Will you please join with me in prayer? Oh God, we come to you today with our hearts wide open, our spirits ready to receive your word. We pray that we can listen and hear and allow your word to sit and grow. Oh God, we yearn and we are hungry for your word. We pray that the words will be glorifying to you, that they'll be inspiring for each other. And, oh God, that we will listen with an ear for action. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. When my children were small, there was a new fad that was kind of the rage around the country. It was called the magic eye you could get these designs in calendars or posters or even coffee table books, and they were really quite amazing. One of the mysteries of the Magic Eye was that it, it took a little bit of, of uh, negotiating of the way you look at it and able to see a picture within a picture. And, and sometimes it was such an intricate picture, and it was blurred and hidden by geometric designs And sometimes some people couldn't see them, no matter how hard they tried. And that's what one of the things that it seemed so magical about it. Well, I was one of those people that couldn't see the picture within the picture. So when my husband and my six and eight-year-old looked at a picture of what looked to me like green triangles and multicolored zigzags, they were seeing dolphins jumping through the waves and seagulls coming at and landing on a sandy beach. And no matter how hard they tried, they couldn't get me to see what they were seeing. And of course, this was frustrating for me, but the most interesting thing was that it was 10 times more frustrating for them that I couldn't see it than it actually was for me. Of course, we uh, later learned that when you have an astigmatism like the one I had, that it can be very difficult sometimes to see the magic eye. It's uh, seeing a picture within a picture, and sometimes your cornea just isn't set up for that. How can you be so blind? How can you not see? How can you not understand? And it was interesting to me to see their frustration because they loved me and they wanted me to be able to see what they were seeing. We're currently most aware of these kind of questions and these frustrated questions coming out of a discussion between people or groups when we talk about things like politics or religion, cultural or healthcare, it seems that at times we're a people that are at odds with each other. And this is a different kind of frustration. This frustration doesn't necessarily rise out of a loving uh, desire for us to see another's point of view. I'd like to ask you whatever reason for your frustration to hang on to that frustration for just a minute and to take that frustration and let us step into Paul's shoes as he experiences this overwhelming frustration as he faces his greatest heartbreak. And his greatest heartbreak was the inability or unwillingness of the Jews to see Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. And today we continue with the series on Paul's writings in the book of Romans. And in this particular passage, we find ourselves right in the middle of Paul's extended theological wrestling 
with the fate of his fellow Jews, whom he was deeply loved and deeply committed to. He is literally anguishing over the fact that most Jews were continuing to seek righteousness on their own by fulfilling the law rather than through faith in Jesus Christ. He couldn't understand how they could be so blind to the fact that this was the Messiah, the Messiah that the prophets had spoken of. He couldn't understand how they could be so blind to the fact that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that was written in the law. He is a Jewish religious scholar, and so he employs the scriptures from the Torah, the Jews' sacred text, to try to open that door for them, to try and bring them to that realization and that understanding. And so it's not surprising that right in the middle of Paul's explanation of the salvation of Israel, we find that he pauses right in the middle of it, once again, to try and lay out the relationship between Christ and the law, the lordship of Jesus Christ, and the mission of those who follow God. Let's go to our scriptures this morning. From Romans 10, 15, 5 through 15. Moses writes concerning the righteousness that comes from the law that the person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified. And one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. The scripture says no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it is written... How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If we go back and we look at this particular scripture passage, we can see that that 10, 5 through 15 is an expansion of something that Paul actually says in 10, 4. He states that Christ is the end of the law. What does he mean by that? And by no means is this a judgment on the law. This is not a, it's not a judgment on the merits of the law. It's not a a judgment on the beauty of the spirit of the law. It's not in any way dismissive of the way the, the law reflects God's guidance for us into an abundant life. The law remains a beautiful guide to a righteous life, but 
The primary purpose of the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And how has that happened? Christ has showed us what the law intended to do and be in person. He embodies the law. He was in harmony with God and he showed a pure mercy and love for his fellow human beings. He lived the life the Torah was designed to create and which we could never attain on our own. Christ is the very purpose of the law. The law was given in order to reconcile human beings, all of humanity, to God. And with the incarnation, that word that became flesh, God, who became a person, coming in Jesus Christ, the purpose has been achieved. God and all of us have been reunited. Now, embracing Christ as the fulfillment of the law compels us to embrace Christ as the salvation of the world. To confess Jesus as Lord, however, is a very frightening and a very compelling thing all at the same time. There's so much tension within the gospel and within even our relationship with the gospel and with Christ. And it's a sacred tension that we're able to hold because of the person of Christ and because of the gift of grace that God gives us. On the one hand, for us to say that Jesus is Lord means in fact that we follow Jesus. And when we follow Jesus and our lives are to enact the life of Jesus, then we also become heirs to discrimination, to injustice and oppression at the hands of an abusive power because Jesus experienced those things. We proclaim ourselves as followers of Jesus, but we have to really wrestle with, is that the kind of life that we're up for? Is that the kind of life that we can live? A life that may put us on the outside of the popular. A life that may put us in the margins of the acceptable. A kind of life that sometimes makes us a peculiar people. And on the other hand, to say that Jesus is Lord is to trust the one who came to serve rather than to be served and who offers freedom rather than chains and bondage. And what a wonderful, compelling call that is. To have Jesus as one's Lord is to give allegiance to the one who has loved us before the dawn of time, the one who calls us by name, the one who knows us, and who desires us to be firmly embraced in the arms of the Lord as we were meant to be, to be called children of God. And this relationship is so complex and can only start to make sense when we can trust that God loves us and knows us and desires this deep relationship with us. And then it begins to make sense. The suffering, the pain, as well as the victory and the joy. Faith is also an embodied reality. We know that because God came not as a thought. God did not come simply as a feeling. God came as a person. God came embodied in Jesus Christ. And faith is embodied as well. And in this brief passage alone, Paul speaks of lips and mouth and heart. 
and the way for believers to explain God to others, to those who have not yet heard, is not, is not through theological brilliance. It's not through scriptural proofs. It's not through doctrine or dogma. Instead, it is living out the word that is within each of us. We embody that faith. And doing that in a way that makes sense to others in the context. Theologian John Calvin asserts that when God speaks to us, he lisps with us as nurses are wont to do with little children. In other words, God speaks to us in baby talk, in a language that each of us can understand. Imagine the infinite trying to speak to the finite. It it would be impossible unless God was willing to accommodate God's self to the way we understand. And God does. And God says that we are to do the same thing. We are to frame the message so, so that it can be understood. Human to human, somebody to another body. Depending on the context, that could mean that witnessing to your faith with the words that you speak about, sharing your story, or by engaging in actions that proclaim that, that faith in concrete ways, the way we've been doing with so much mission and reaching out, Both of these are a natural integration of both words and action, and they bear the greatest witness of the power and the transformational nature of God's love. In any case, the instruction of the scripture is very clear, that those of us who believe are to be messengers of the good news of faith. And the pastoral challenge is equally clear. Evangelism is not optional. If the first part of this text is focused on the law and the lordship of Jesus, then the second part of this text is central to our mission, is Paul's rallying cry. But how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim them? And how are they to proclaim him unless they're sent? Evangelism conjures up so many negative images or experiences for many people. We think of it as bumper stickers that make us cringe or people who are dressed oddly, who who speak oddly, who make us feel guilt or badly about ourselves, who stand up in crowds and have a megaphone or a microphone and, and embarrass, are embarrassing with their words of condemnation and restriction. But evangelism is very different than that. The tension around evangelism is not from the methods so much, but rather from the motive. And that's something that we can be very clear about. The tension is between the doing and the believing. What is it that you believe? How is it that you communicate your faith? Those who feel that it's their responsibility by their actions to save other people, whether by good works or persuasive words, have really missed the mark of what's being taught to us in Scripture. 
And Paul, in this particular passage, offers a very gentle correction to those who would bring Christ to others. He reminds us that Christ is already present, that it's not up to us to save the world. God has already done that. It is up to us to believe that this is true, that God has saved the world and that Christ is present and to live our lives as though we believe that to be true. We can't save other people by our actions alone. We can't even save ourselves. What the apostle is urging us to do is to urging us to a life of interior and exterior authenticity that goes along with what it is that we believe and what it is that we are so desperately wanting for others to know not because we want to judge them, but because it's so beautiful. It's so wonderful. Because we, we are curious and, ho- and, and interested in where do they find hope? How do they claim tomorrow as we do? Because we follow a Savior who's alive and a Savior who gives us hope. And we want others to know about that hope that mystery, that picture within the picture. We, not, we may not be able to change really anything, but as we know, our scriptures tell us, faith can change everything. Evangelism is about introducing others to Jesus. And, and it's not our job to convert others to our doctrines or our style of liturgy or worship or our particular agenda. That's not what our introduction is about. We're not responsible either for the outcome of the introduction. That's a task that belongs to the Holy Spirit. The introduction we make comes from our own experience with Christ. What is your story? And how do you share that story? It begins with listening. And it continues with conversation. This kind of evangelism requires that we live as Jesus calls us to live. And that is to live a life of love and honesty and a life of humility. By the way, I was finally able to see some of those pictures within a pictures. If I could hold it just right, if I could lead up to it and look at it in a different way. And I have to tell you, when I was able to see, when I was able to understand, oh, how my family rejoiced. Thanks be to God.